seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Joining us in just a few moments will be Eric Blanc. Eric is a journalist who's been covering the teacher strikes for the past couple of years for the likes of Jacobin Magazine and The Nation. He also has a book coming out in just a couple of months called Red State Revolt, What the Teacher Strike Wave Means for Workers and Politics. And uh, he is in Denver as we speak covering the latest teacher strike. He was in L.A. a couple of weeks ago, and he spent his uh, almost entire year of 2018 traipsing around these red states covering those Wildcat strikes from last year. We're going to talk to him all about that. That discussion went down two days ago, and since then, as of Thursday morning, Denver Public Schools announced that they have reached a deal with the teachers that will end this three-day strike. This is a massive victory for the Denver teachers, and it looks like they're going to have a pay increase by up to 11%, which includes built-in cost of living increases and more opportunities for future salary hikes, reports the Associated Press. The deal must still be ratified by the full union membership, but it looks like it ticks all the boxes, and it looks likely that this deal will be indeed ratified. The only question that remains at this point is why in the hell do teachers have to go on strike to gain a sensible pay hike uh, when the administrators and the politicians at the helm of this thing could have just granted it at the beginning of negotiations. At every turn, the blame for strikes is laid solely at the feet of unions. But if they were able to find the money after a three-day strike to pay teachers a living wage so the teachers can live inside the city of Denver and remain teachers inside the district, then why in the hell couldn't they have done that three days ago? Moreover, why couldn't they have done that months ago when the contract negotiations first began? These are the questions that trade union militants and socialists should be putting at the fore in the midst of these victorious results that we see here in Denver. But in any case, in the face of the intransigence of the ruling class, strike action gets the goods, folks. Consider this another feather in the cap of this socialist wave that we have been experiencing for the past two to three years. Eric Blanc is going to fill us in and talk about some of the implications on our political scene. But before we get to that, just a quick reminder that DPS is entirely funded by our listeners. If you like what we do here and you want to help support this political project, I try to bring on some of the best guests, the journalists, activists, scholars around. I'm really trying to build a new left agenda, one that takes uh, progressive politics seriously, but seeks to push it further into a more principled socialist and even Marxist direction. So if you like this project, if you think it's important and you want to help us do this, Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and consider becoming a subscriber. We have a lot of different tiers and we offer some interesting rewards. I think uh, they're useful to our patrons to help along their political education. But in the coming months, we want to transition away from putting the majority of our material behind paywalls. I certainly didn't get into this gig in order to shove this valuable content behind a paywall so that the vast majority of people out there don't have access to it. So if you want to help keep as much of this content free as possible, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and consider donating an hour's worth of your wage to our operations each month to help keep us growing and expanding well into 2020 and beyond. Big shout out to all of our current patrons. You know who you are. We couldn't do this without you. All right. On with the show. 
Joining us on the line straight out of Denver, Colorado is Eric Blanc. Eric is a former high school teacher from the Bay Area in California. He's the author of the forthcoming Red State Revolt from Verso out in April of this year. You can find his writing in Jacobin Magazine and The Nation. And uh, we're going to be talking to him about the latest blue state strike wave, in particular, the Denver Teachers Union strike. And uh, we're going to contextualize this with the red state strikes from last year. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's all mine. You have been writing feverishly about these teachers' strikes since they first kicked off in 2017. You've got a book coming up on the red state revolt. We're going to talk much more about that in the coming interview, but let's go ahead and get started with your current context. You are in Denver. Must be very exciting to be on the picket lines uh, in, in the first couple of days of a strike. Yeah, every single time it's amazing. The kind of euphoria of workers taking that risk and then being out on the picket line with each other and the students coming out and the community, it doesn't really get old. Uh, so I have a lucky job where I can kind of run around and document these struggles. And every single time it's, you know, it's a little hard to put into words sometimes, but it, it feels just like the normal routine of life stops. And all of a sudden the norm of a strike takes hold and you become immediate friends with people on the picket line after 20 minutes. And you see this process of people becoming political very quickly in the span of a day or two, uh, really spread uh, across the city and in some ways across the state. So the situation in Denver right now is very exciting. The strike has gone into its second day. The support is overwhelming amongst the community. The last poll had it at something hovering around 80% of the public supports the teachers. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the most you know distinguishing thing about the Denver strike, I would say, is not so much the demands. The demands are pretty straightforward, in part because of the particularities of the contract right now. They're actually only legally allowed to bargain over wages. Uh, there's a separate contract uh, coming up in which they can talk about class size and broader issues. But right now, legally, they can only talk about wages. So it's a wage struggle. And in that sense, it's a you know pretty straightforward battle. But Really what set Denver apart, I think, is that despite the relatively narrow nature of the demands, students have seized hold on the action of their teachers to really fight back against the deterioration of their own schools. So you've seen mass student walkouts, you had student sit-ins. Uh, some of your listeners might have seen the clip of a pro-strike, pro-teacher dance party that erupted on Monday. The students just ignored their, yeah, they, they ignored the admin. And to be honest, it made me feel old because I didn't know this song, but Mo Bamba, does that mean something to you? Yeah, so they, they, they Not did a, a dance party like La, La Bamba? La Bamba? Is no, that Mo, right? No, Mo, Mo Bamba. Mo Bamba, which is I, I, on YouTube, it has like almost 200 million hits. So clearly, both you and I are not as cool as we think we are because everybody here knows that song.
Oh, I assure anyway. you, I don't. I don't think I'm cool anymore. But that, that's exciting to see that there's a carnival esque kind of uh, you know um, a spirit that's breaking out here. Uh, people taking hold of their own lives and and feeling the euphoric kind of uh, joy, you know, that that you get from that 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 kind of uh, experience of your own power. So, so what's the spirit on the picket lines, and and what, what are the kind of teachers uh, thinking about in terms of how to move forward? Yeah, well, the picket lines, the first thing to say is that it was really cold yesterday. So it's nice that it got a little bit warmer today because we were freezing. You know, despite that, the mora- morale is very high. Um, I think most teachers are pretty confident that they're going to win. There's a sense that they have the support. And, you know, th- this isn't a union like Los Angeles where the radicals took over and really transformed it into a fighting machine. It's 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 um it's sort of intermediary type dynamic in which the old guard leadership still uh, is actually in charge, but a rank and file caucus when a minority has the vice presidency. So it's a union that is not like a well-oiled red machine mobilizing and putting forward the you know working class political vision. Despite that, the teachers are fired up. And the students are fired up. And I, it seems right now that they're in a good position to win around their demands because they're not asking for uh, really a huge break in the paradigm. They're, they're asking to basically be able to make a living wage in Denver, which is not easy to do given the rising cost of living. But generally, there's a sense that bargaining should go their way. But you never know. The district hasn't made it clear that they're willing to concede. So it could last through the week or it could last longer. It's hard to say. I think the real excitement coming from a real class struggle, bottom-up oriented uh, strike, such as this one, such as the ones we've seen in LA, such as the one that looks imminent in Oakland, is that it it transcends the kind of sectoralism of business unionism that we, that has dominated this realm of struggle over the past 30 or 40 years, certainly within our lifetime and most of the lifetimes of our listeners. But what we see is a little different here. And one of the things that, you know, we should start thinking about very seriously as socialists, and I'd like to, you to quickly comment on this, is, um, you know, what has it got to be like? What is it like as a high school student to be able to, to witness firsthand a, a real militant, you know, um, teachers-led strike? I mean, the formative... Uh, what kind of formative impact must that have on someone, uh, you know, in, in terms of setting the stage for one's life and the expectations of politics and from society uh, abroad? That that's it's really interesting to think about the the sort of butterfly effect aspect of all of this. I think that's a great point. It's really been overlooked. So, yes. So since West Virginia, you've had hundreds of thousands of teachers participate in strikes. But we're talking literally millions of students having their schools shut down and many of them actively participating. So it's actually a much larger number of students that have been affected by and participated in these strikes. And I don't think we should underestimate the political impact that that will have on a whole new generation of working class students and who are going to be future workers, if not already, very soon. And, you know, part of the dynamic is that schools, as you probably know, are often really authoritarian And they train people in many ways just to follow orders. And so one of the really interesting dynamics of strike is that all of a sudden becomes clear to students that they have to make political choices about who to side with. Because you have districts saying one thing and you have the teachers saying another. And they literally have to decide whether they're across a picket line. So the normal power structure 
all of a sudden seems up for grabs. And people that they might have felt actually not that much connection to all of a sudden become allies, not just on the local level, but really on broader political issues. So even though it's a wage struggle, as I mentioned, at this point, people see it as a fight to save the schools, to push back the privatization uh, of Denver schools, which has gone rampant, just like it was in Los Angeles, to fight against racial injustice because the schools that have been most hard hit have been in black and brown communities. You know, all of these major issues that normally people feel that they have no sense of power over, all of a sudden it's up for grabs. And regardless of what happens in the immediate strike negotiations, the political impact for years to come is going to be huge in all of the states and all the cities that have had these strikes. Well said. It's my understanding there's been some really creative and interesting uh, acts of solidarity, which of course started in LA, but have now been sort of transported to Denver in no small part via the kind of solidarity networks produced and and insured by, uh, say, local DSA chapters and other left-wing and and grassroots-oriented groups. Talk Talk to me about some of the efforts, not only in Denver, but LA to kind of produce that kind of solidaristic environment. Yeah, definitely. The role of the national solidarity really shouldn't be underestimated. Going out on strikes hard, and it can often feel like you're up against the world. So, so having a sense that people across the country and across the state have your back is not just a you know a feel good dynamic. It is actually essential for a lot of these strikes to continue, so that people feel like they have power of their peers on their side. So. Concretely, what you've seen in Denver is a really great initiative that was uh, launched by the ISO plus Denver DSA to provide tamales for teachers. It's actually a, the latest iteration of what in LA was tacos for teachers, which was a smash hit. And, you know, in addition to just being good solidarity, it also helps legitimize socialists within the labor movement because for, you know, years, people were scared to even say you were a socialist. Now, even if people don't necessarily agree with socialists. It's not a dirty word. And, you know, ideally, people start talking politics, class politics, Bernie Sanders, when they get the tacos or the tamales. But at a minimum, they feel like socialists are people that support them and provide good Mexican food now, which is a step up from the red states, which I love, but there was a lot of cold pizza. So culturally, the move towards blue states has been a culinary step forward for the class struggle. And so just a a note to any listeners thinking about which types of solidarity actions to do in your state. Tamales or tacos, uh, they're my recommendation. So yeah, the solidarity is really important. In addition to DSA and ISO, you have networks like Labor Notes that have really cohered the best and brightest and most militant teachers across the state who are talking to each other and learning from each other. So after West Virginia, Los Angeles talked to them, and now people are talking to Los Angeles. And there's this really amazing percolation factor in which the accumulated wisdom of strikes has spread really quickly, partly because of these networks. As a, you know, a down south hillbilly myself, I can speak for my people when I say, uh, come on, folks, uh, come on, y'all, as, as, as I use in my uh, colloquial tongue, come on, y'all. Uh, step up your culinary game, friends. Uh, the blue states uh, are leading the way with the tamales and the tacos. I went on strike for six weeks, and uh, I think all I had in that period was uh, cold coffee and donuts. So at least they're covering their proteins and getting more of their food groups. That's uh, a real improvement for sure. So uh, speaking of the red state strike, let's peel it back here. So now let's take it back to 2018. You've mentioned the red state strikes. You have a book on the red state revolt coming out in a matter of a couple of months. 
Let's talk about how this all began in the wake of the Bernie Sanders campaign and how the red states rose up and engaged in unlawful and wildcat uh, strike action to get the attention of their legislators and their population and to sort of start a new era in uh, class struggle militancy in those in those states. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that insofar as people particularly on the coasts talk about red states, you know, for the last years, particularly before the teacher strikes, the narrative was basically these are a bunch of reactionary white racists, and there's not really much to look at there as far as progressive politics. The white racists that voted in Trump, this is really the, this is the narrative, in particular about West Virginia, where it was, it was seen as emblematic somehow of the supposed shift of the white working class to Trump, ignoring things like the fact that Bernie Sanders actually won every single county in that primary. So the myth, I would say, of this like vast undifferentiated reactionary mass in between California and New York was directly challenged by the eruption of these strikes. The strikes really caught a lot of people by surprise. But for those of us, I think, who were following a little bit more closely and who didn't really buy into the liberal narrative of the 2016 elections, uh, there were a lot of indications of something was brewing. We didn't know clearly that it was going to take this form. But if you look at the Bernie Sanders campaign and the the support that it got in places like West Virginia or Arizona, where he won uh, handily, there was clearly an indication that significant sectors of working people and young people were looking for a different type of politics. And that contrary to the myth of the you know racist white working class, which clearly there are uh, some, but you know there's a much larger amount of workers who are just fed up with the politics that were offered by Democrats and Republicans alike, and we're looking for whatever seemed like a viable alternative to politics as usual. And so the Bernie Sanders campaign in a place like West Virginia really galvanized a lot of people. And some of the most important people that it galvanized were, in fact, the small group of socialists that launched and initiated the West Virginia strike, the core group of organizers that for months built up to the West Virginia strike first got involved organizing with each other through the DSA. And that DSA was born basically out of the Bernie Sanders campaign. So there's clearly a political backstory to these red state strikes. But when they erupted, you know, it was a game changer. All of a sudden, in February of 2018, you know, West Virginia started it. And the political conversation nationwide changed immediately because the strike was put back on the table. And it really would be hard to exaggerate how important that is because for decades, the strike has been off the table. Labor officials have made it seem impossible. People don't even really consider that as an option. And what West Virginia did was it put work stoppages and the power of withholding your labor back as a central option for working people. And the people that seized it the most were in other states that faced a similar sort of structural political context. You see states like Oklahoma and Arizona, where the public education system had just been decimated by Republicans and in which the kind of mechanisms for moderating labor, such as the Democratic Party and really a strong labor bureaucracy, were extremely weak. So they didn't have the space to kind of prevent these rank-and-file upsurges. And so in all three of these states last year that had statewide strikes, it was really the rank and file 
that led and the union leaders followed. They used social media, they surged into their unions, but it was an extremely chaotic and uh, semi-spontaneous dynamic that went much further than I think anybody had anticipated. So talk to us a little bit about the extant grassroots movement in a place like West Virginia, where this all really kicked off in 2018. Uh, again, I mean, I, having been uh, born and raised, uh, spent much of my adult life within a very close proximity to that Virginia, West Virginia line. I can uh, back up your your uh, assurance to our, our coastal and perhaps uh, urban audience in some in some sp- uh, places. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of really radical and well-organized grassroots movements in place focusing on things like mountaintop removal, focusing on things like, uh, you know, opposing pipelines, those types of activities going all the way back to, you know, the, the legacy of the coal miners and some of the Appalachian sort of justice communities that have sprung up in the wake of just, uh, you know, you know, 50, 60 some odd years of, of state repression and, and um, deprivation. So talk to us about some of those existing movements that were already sort of in place laying the groundwork for what would happen in 2018. Yeah. So the first existing organization I, I mentioned a little, and I think it's not the least significant of it, which was the DSA, which emerged and which a lot of those activists got involved, had had an experience in different organizing in West Virginia. So someone like Emily Comer, who was one of the founders of the Facebook page that launched the strike and became a really important rank and file strike leader, you know, had, had been involved in a variety of different economic justice, racial justice issues in West Virginia. So yeah, there's clearly a continuity. The second major, maybe tradition and organization that's worth pointing to is uh, in the Southern counties of West Virginia, where you have a real coal mining tradition. And so the strike, in some ways, was the confluence of two sets of radical organizers, one uh, based out of Charleston, who were socialists in the DSA, and the other uh, weren't socialists, but extremely militant and radical, although not particularly ideological, in counties like Mingo and Wyoming and Logan, right in the southern part of West Virginia. And for all of them, They were teachers, they weren't coal miners, but the vast majority of their parents had been coal miners. And uh, you talk to almost any one of them, and they'd been on a picket line. They could talk to you about the stories of their uh, fathers usually getting in physical battles with scabs in the 1980s. So there's a tradition of labor militancy really concentrated in those regions of the state that helped make West Virginia the first place where these strikes exploded. I think actually sometimes the level of tradition gets exaggerated in West Virginia. You know, there's sometimes a sort of a romantic perception of, you know, everybody there's wearing a red bandana. I didn't see that on a statewide level, but it's definitely the case in a place like Mingo. And that tradition and that history weighs very heavy there. Right. I think one of the things you raised there is that, you know, there's a, you, you say, uh, correct me if I'm off base here, but I, I having grown up in, a, in places like this, you call them not very ideological. And I suppose what you mean there is they have a very kind of organic uh, connection uh, to their interests and they understand what their interests are and, and who, who, you know, who the bad guys are, who's, who's got the, their, their boots uh, metaphorically on the back of their necks. Right. Uh, but, but it doesn't really play into, to what, you know, the coastals and the urbans and the, and the graduate students would, would uh, call a, a very coherent ideology. What role do strikes like this play in kind of cohering these kind of organic you know, material interests into a much more connected kind of uh, uh, struggle, uh, not only statewide, but nationwide. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. The existing dynamic before the strike in a place like Mingo is that there really is a sense of class consciousness on the part of a lot of working people. Not in an ideological sense, like you know, referencing Marx or something like that, but just basically realizing that the rich are screwing them over and that the majority of people in their state are workers and are poor and that they have interests that are in conflict with this you know, this small group of rich people. So that was there. That didn't have to be created by the strike. But what the strike did was it gave people a sense of power. And in turn, it clarified who exactly the enemies were. And it raised the question of what it would take to defeat them, both in the short term and long term. And so to give you know some meat to that, the issue in West Virginia immediately became, uh, where are you going to pay for these wage increases? How are you going to pay for giving better health care to the whole state, which was really at the heart of a lot of the strike. And so the question was, well, where are the funds? And the answer was, well, the natural gas companies are exploiting our state. They're paying almost nothing in taxes. We need to go after them. So you had strikers in the Capitol when I was there chanting, tax our gas, tax our gas. So the class consciousness predated it, but all of a sudden a clear political solution became evident which was, well, make the rich pay. And a movement in that direction materialized in the strike. So all of a sudden you had a statewide movement that could actually make that demand. And I think that it raises all sorts of other political questions, even for people who you know hadn't thought in partisan lines before, because in a place like West Virginia, to be honest, there's so little difference between the Democrats and Republicans. And it makes sense that most people sort of just check out and don't vote. But all of a sudden, when you need to tax the rich then it raises the question of like, well, how are we going to do that? Is a strike enough or do we have to have some sort of like political electoral expression that's going to be able to give voice to the type of militancy that we saw in the strike? Well said. I want to talk about the results of the West Virginia strike and some of the clawbacks. And of course, that that battle uh, continues and we'll wrap up this interview by by sort of uh, catching us at the present there. But before we do that, let's move to, like, say, you know, uh, Oklahoma and Arizona and elsewhere where these red uh, state strikes uh, sort of cropped up seemingly out of nowhere. You know, unfortunately, we can't cover all of those and get to the blue state strikes as well. But give us a little uh, quick summary of how those kicked off as well and where the similarities and differences uh, sort of lie throughout the course of those events in 2018. Yeah, so in terms of the results, again, the first thing to say is that in some ways the the most important result of a strike is the sense of collective organization and consciousness and empowerment that comes out of it. So that shouldn't be uh, you know seen as secondary. That's the really, in some ways, the big win. But as far as the material and political victories that were won, there's a a pretty clear pattern in the states. One is that significant wage increases were won across the board. So you got 5% in West Virginia, about 15% in Oklahoma, and about 20% in Arizona. The The second big policy win that was clear in all of these states was that the strikes were able to roll back some attacks on, for instance, furthering privatization and further dismantling the schools. So uh, a whole slew of ALEC-inspired bills were stopped by the strikes. And then the third thing I would say is that there was also real limitations to the gains that were won insofar as the demands raised around raising funding for schools 
and the more comprehensive demand in West Virginia uh, to fully fund PEIA, which is their uh, state insurance program. These kind of more far-reaching demands, which were quite central to the strikes, for the most part, were not won yet. Uh, so people felt that these were victories, particularly in Arizona and West Virginia. Oklahoma really felt more like a defeat for uh, a variety of reasons. But in really none of the states had the question of taxing the rich to really fully fund services. Uh, that question hasn't been won anywhere yet. And that raises a series of interesting questions about both the power of strikes and their limitations. And I think that's worth thinking through as we go forward in the other strikes in the blue states. Talk to us really quickly about the role of ALEC. Explain to our, our listeners what that is. Uh, m- m- many people are having a lot more awareness of, of ALEC and its role and how to fight back. But I think this is a real moment where we can hang our hats and, and say that we're, we're staving off the worst impacts of this. These sort of uh, bigoted, moronic, stuffed shirt hayseeds in, in the state legislatures in, in Oklahoma and in, in, in Arizona couldn't possibly wage a sophisticated class or political struggle against poor and working class folks disproportionately black and brown in these states without the support of ALEC. So um, let's talk a little bit about that before we move forward to the blue states. Yeah, ALEC basically is a think tank and a kind of like corporate bill making machine that serves as a apparatus to help and push conservative uh, legislatures to pass through a slew of reactionary laws uh, really across the board not just around education, but on questions of racial justice, environmental justice, what have you. Basically, any good thing that we can think of, Alec is actively organizing right now as we speak to uh, either roll back or prevent. So yeah. uh, Alec meets with legislators and they they wine and dine them. And they basically write proposed legislation to do things like pass more charters, pass vouchers, and make strikes illegal. And last year, those initiatives lost. So in the process, people also started talking a little bit more about ALEC and a lot of these foundations that are behind the real regressive policies around education and economic policies as well. Uh, you've heard stories uh, in, in places like West Virginia and Oklahoma in particular, where you know <laughs> these bills were rushed through so quickly that uh, they sort of failed to fill in the sort of Mad Libs uh, format of these ready-made templates uh, offered by ALEC. And there's some really embarrassing kind of uh, outcomes there. There's some bills that were ratified by state legislatures that, st- that still have like, you know, uh, fill in state name here, uh, blanks, you know, and in, in some of these bills, it's really shameful, but it's nice to see some real pushback and exposing these frauds. Uh, you know, coming from the Republican Party and also to the, the the inadequate support of many sectors of the Democratic Party. And you can com- comment on that as we transition uh, for sure. But that's a great place to start with these blue state strikes, isn't it? Because this has been uh, a challenge to the privatization drive that uh, certainly is personified by the likes of Betsy DeVos, but definitely did not start there. Started with the likes of, uh, you know, the Obama administration, Arne Duncan, and even before then, going back to the Clinton administration. So um, let's transition into these blue state strikes. Where do they start? How do they differ from the red state strikes? Yeah. So when when West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma were all popping off, the line of the media at the time was, well, these are red state struggles. Uh, the Republicans are clearly bad. 
this is a problem in a couple states. You know, luckily we don't have that here where we live. And so uh, for those of us on the left, we realized from the start that that was BS, that actually the problems in these states were nationwide issues, but that was, was not apparent to people immediately. And so what Los Angeles in particular did was make it clear that precisely the policies of austerity and privatization that have decimated schools in a place like Oklahoma and Arizona are just as manifest in their own cities run by Democrats. And it raises this whole question then of like, why have the unions been supporting the exact politicians for decades that are slitting their throats? There's a real contradiction there where unions uh, and working people generally, insofar as they do vote, have voted for Democrats, people like Obama, who, you know, paint themselves as progressive. And then when they get elected into office, rather than listen to the you know, voters who voted them in, they listen to the funders who paid for their campaigns and they push through, you know, extremely regressive acts like doubling charters. The number of charter schools in the United States doubled under the Obama administration and the Department of Education of uh, Arne Duncan. So when we talk about Los Angeles, the significance, I think, is basically that this was a strike against the Democratic Party, and in particular the Democratic Party establishment. And it raised the issue nationwide of, well, if they could do it there, why can't we do it here? It also raised the issue of the right to strike, because in California, unlike a lot of other blue states, public sector strikes are legal. But it, like I live in New York, and public sector strikes are illegal. And all of a sudden, teachers in New York are saying, well, what's going on here? How come no one's talking about this? How come we can't do what they're doing? So the impact of Los Angeles has already been felt in a place like Denver and Oakland. And I think we should probably expect it to continue to inspire other work actions in big blue cities across the country for the foreseeable future. So let's transition into the specifics of the L.A. teachers strike that just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. It was a broadly successful conclusion. They were able to win a great deal of their demands. You saw some real militant class struggle trade unionism, and it really set the stage uh, for these coming blue state strikes, including the current one in Denver. It's my understanding you were in L.A. for uh, quite a bit of that. So uh, talk to us about what you found there and, uh, and, and, and what went down in L.A. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. The struggle in LA, I think, was the most powerful of all of the strikes so far because they they had to go up against the strongest enemy, and they also had the most difficult organizing challenge. The basic dynamic was that corporate privatizers took over the school board in 2017 and put forward a plan to radically dismantle the schools. And it was in that context that the... LA leadership of the union, which really were a crew of radicals and social justice-minded teachers, they consciously oriented this to be a broad struggle to push back not only for better working conditions, but really to make it clear that what was at stake in LA was a fight between the working class and a small clique of billionaires that wanted to dismantle the public education system. And that's how they framed the strike. It was the schools versus the billionaires. And they won. And it was extremely hard to win because LA is so massive, it's geographically dispersed. I, I grew up in California and I have a good amount of organizing experience there. And frankly, I thought LA was unorganizable. And what they were able to do after you know four years of really systematic buildup, uh, this wasn't a spontaneous 
uh, action by any means. That type of organizing needs to be systematically studied by labor activists across the country because it was really unprecedented in its level of depth and its level of organization. And without that, there's no way they would been able to win what they did. And what they won was considerable. The biggest win was they got rid of this really hated part of the contract, which was Section 1.5, which allowed the district to unilaterally raise class sizes to any size it wanted. And that was the hole through which the district has already started making schools so untenable that parents would want to need to go to charters as an alternative. So getting rid of that loophole basically was the starting point for being able to reverse the privatization in LA. So they got rid of that at the last minute. And it was only because the district saw that the teachers and the union were going to stay on strike as long as it took to get that demand won. They won a series of other things that were also you know, very significant, a nurse in every school, a large amount of counselors. They changed the political narrative about the crisis of public education in LA and the state. And one thing that that meant was they were able to get political motion forward now, uh, both on a city and statewide level, to talk about a moratorium on charters, which would be a huge step forward in a place like California and potentially nationwide to really put a halt to the privatizing schemes that have really been at the fore of the Democratic Party's policies for all these years. So the, I think the results of that strike, at least on the, at the surface level, could be seen to be uh, quite mixed. There was a piece that came out in, in these times that was kind of assessing the results of that strike. It interviewed uh, five or six teachers. And, um, you know, they, they mentioned uh, that there was quite a bit of uh, satisfaction and excitement about the, uh, some of the victories. But there was also a sense that maybe they didn't quite uh, they weren't able to go as far as they might have liked. Um, but your reframing there on the class sizes, I think, is is useful because it demonstrates that it wasn't so much um, an inadequately sort of uh, realized demand, but it was, there was more of a structural kind of uh, imperative in place that it wasn't just about class sizes in terms of like a numbers game, but it was a way of challenging the kind of logic of the privatization drive. So talk to us a little bit about some of the results of the LA strike and how they set the tone for the coming strike, not only in Denver, but perhaps even more importantly in Oakland, because that strike much, much closely, uh, much more closely mirrors the dynamic in LA. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when, whenever there's a strike, there's, there's a uh, normally a group of workers that are dissatisfied in LA. It's interesting that the, the most radical and most longstanding union activists were the most supportive of the contract, partly because they realized how much they had won. Whereas a lot of the relatively newly politicized teachers, to be honest, had their expectations set so high and they were so empowered by the strike that they, they thought they were going to win everything. They just, they thought, you know, they, they, they thought the sky was the limit. So it's really in some ways a beautiful thing. And you have this relatively anomalous dynamic in which the radicals have to say, look, this was actually great. And I know for a fact, because I, I, I talked to the organizers before, they won more than they expected. The, the union really didn't expect to won as much as they did. That being said, there was a real uh, political organizational limitation to the rollout of the victory. And it's important because strikes are going to be happening across the country. And this dynamic of how do you end a strike democratically mm-hmm. is significant because basically what happened is the the contract tentative agreement was reached late on, uh, well, really early Monday morning after like a 72-hour all-weekend bargaining session. 
And the union leadership was so confident that it was a great contract that they they didn't give themselves uh, enough time to discuss with the membership. They didn't give the membership enough time to really discuss collectively the details. So what ended up happening is they, they relatively rushed through the ratification vote, which is still, as a parenthesis, better than most unions, which don't even bring it back to their membership before it's accepted half the time. You know, but the, 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 a lot of the teachers only had a few hours to read the contract. And the, uh, there really was quite a bit of dissatisfaction immediately, particularly with the process. And then also with some of the details where, you know, certain people thought they could have gotten more. As the kind of details of what was actually won have diffused outwards, I think most people I've talked to, uh, including people that felt like the process should have been uh, slower and more deliberative, uh, have come to realize how big a deal the victory was. But there is a lesson there that, you know, the model I think we should look towards and that unions should look towards is more like what happened in Chicago in 2012, where they gave themselves two extra days uh, for workers to read through everything in the tentative agreement before they voted on it. And I think that insofar as that's possible, because sometimes the district puts a gun to your hand, that's to a certain extent what happened in Los Angeles. Insofar as it's possible, you want to give yourself as much time to let the rank and file really make a democratic decision on how to move forward or not. Because the worst that happens is they say, no, we want more. And that's a great bargaining chip to throw back at the district and be like, look, we tried, but our members want more. So, you know, hopefully Oakland and other cities can learn from that experience. Having been in a bargaining team myself on a very contentious and long, long, long strike, I can tell you that the pressure uh, is high and that you're getting sort of pushed and pulled in a lot of directions. And when you get that final pass, when you get that final offer, that final pass of the paper, so to speak, and it ticks all the boxes that you and your comrades in that bargaining team have been discussing for the last, you know, days, weeks, seemingly forever, the excitement is so high and the sense of achievement is so great that it's, yeah, you sort of feel like, okay, now we've won. This is it. It's ratified. We need to, let's do this damn thing. But you need to go to your membership and you need to win that. You need to sort of win that argument and and have a give and take process. And you're right to say that it's, it's difficult. And this isn't just a case of like people who were insufficiently ideologically inclined. These are structural constraints. I mean, I wish it was just a case that we could just, you know, have everyone read the Mao's little red book before they go into the bargaining room and, you know, they'll come out uh, class struggle, democratic bottom up, uh, militants, but uh, talk a little bit more in depth, maybe about some of those structural constraints about the collective bargaining process and how it's very difficult to have a, uh, an integrated democratic involvement. There are going to be a lot of listeners out there who will find themselves in this very position in the coming year or two. And uh, it'd be really useful, I think, for people to start thinking through this for themselves. Yeah, I hope you're right that a lot of listeners will be on strike soon and will uh, have to deal with these uh, issues. That would be a good problem to have. You know, so how to how to end a strike, all other things being equal, is a good problem for the left to start facing. So just say that. You know, the collective bargaining process in the United States is extremely anti-democratic. It's not just the structural constraints of how you end a strike, but just everything about it is set up for workers to lose. So even getting a strike started is extremely difficult. Los Angeles got postponed months. Denver got postponed weeks. Once you're in there, the threat of a lawsuit, if you demand things that are outside of permissive issues, becomes extremely high. So in Los Angeles, they had demands on all sorts of issues that uh, they raised, but that they had to take out because they didn't want a lawsuit. And so the, the structural mechanism of collective bargaining 
as it exists in the United States, is set up to make it extremely difficult to work, for workers to win. It's still possible, and so Los Angeles shows that. But you know, one one of the things that I think you were alluding to is that the process of then ending a strike is is made difficult because you're basically faced with a dynamic in which you have a gun to your head and a lot of times employers can use the pressure of the end of a strike and say, we're not going to give you what we promised unless you ratify this immediately. And because of the unequal uh, legal and power dynamics, a bargaining team, even when you have radicals and who are very committed, uh, oftentimes will feel, well, the lesser evil is to take what we've got, let's sign this and push it through, even if it means that uh, our membership doesn't have time to really either ratify it or discuss it collectively. And so you have this very difficult position you're inherently going to be in, in which you have to really wager on whether you can win more by taking it back to the membership or by taking what the bosses have given you. And sometimes it's not so easy to choose. You know, I wish it was always the case that you just always throw it back to the members no matter what. But it's very hard sometimes. In in LA, I talked with the negotiators and they said, to be honest, we had just gotten the district finally to uh, agree to get rid of this section 1.5 on class size. And we were worried that if we didn't really accept the proposed agreement right then, we might not get it back. So you know, it's not it's not always so easy. It's the art of politics is going through that experience. And I think one of the things we're going to have to do as a socialist movement and really as like working class movement generally is relearn some of these lessons, which, as you mentioned, you're not going to really be able to uh, absorb reading Mao. Well, certainly not Mao, but, you know, even our, you know, our more lovely comrades uh, like Lenin or, you know, some of our you know, forebearers in the United States, you're not going to be able to read it through a book. You have to go through the process of struggle and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn from them. And, you know, luckily we're in a position now where we can test this stuff in practice and it's not just sort of a historical debate. That's right. It's exciting that many more people are getting this hands-on experience. Uh, you, you know, as speaking of our comrade Lennon, uh, you know, you, you get a decade's worth of experience in just a week. Sometimes time, and uh, you know, speeds up. And I think a strike is is one of the best examples of such a thing playing out. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, these are good problems to have. And I hope that we are learning together how to, how, to, how to work through them. And I think, you know, building on this kind of inside-outside strategy, this sort of democratic socialist strategy, this uh, inside the state, outside the state, uh, you know, this um, integrated, coherent socialist struggle in broad society is really going to have um, Jesus, I, I always, always end up using these managerial buzzwords on, on DPS. Uh, I don't know why my head goes there. It's like, I've been listening to too many Ted talks or something, but I swear to God, I haven't, but it has a synergistic effect, Eric. It has a synergistic that's a very, effect. That's a very sophisticated term, comrade. Thank you. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how this is going to play out in Oakland, because that's, that's just this kind of integrative, uh, you know, process that we're talking about here, where, where the experience develops upon ex- experience and, and you see our ability to win these things improves and increases um, exponentially going forward. And how is all of this now, you know, I don't want to ignore Denver. Let's, let's tie that up as we go on as well. But how is all of this sort of coming to, to bear on the struggle in Oakland? Because they seem really prepared to do something very exciting. Yeah. So, Losses create more losses and victories create more victories in the class struggle. 
So you could really look at the last 40 years as one uh, escalating loss and defeat after another. And what you're starting to see now and why it's such an exciting moment to be a socialist is with the Bernie Sanders campaign, bringing back class politics, and then the teacher strikes, you have the first victories that give people a sense of confidence. And that spreads because people see when you fight back, you can win. When you strike, you can win. And that's a genie that's very hard to put back in the bottle. So in the context of California, the you know synergistic dynamic that you alluded to is very uh, real. It's very concrete because not that hard for a teacher in Oakland to go meet with a teacher uh, leader in LA. And in fact, there's been this really remarkable back and forth for years between teacher activists trying to learn from each other. And Los Angeles in particular, because they're so much better organized really than anywhere else in the country, has played a very uh, important role in inspiring, but then also giving tactical and strategic advice to the Oakland Union in their struggle. Because the structural constraints are very similar for obvious reasons, because it's the same state. And then also the political dynamics in the in the city are similar in that you have school districts decimated by privatizers, run by Democrats, primarily students of color. And the lessons then of Los Angeles are readily absorbed. Uh, just last weekend, Arlene uh, Inouye, who's the secretary of UTLA, went up to Oakland and did a panel discussion with uh, DSA and, uh, and rank and file teachers to really lay out what the lessons were. So the struggle in that sense builds off of each other and the level of accumulated political and organizational knowledge uh, builds off of each other. It's the same in Denver. I don't think you would have the Denver strike quite confident there would be no Denver strike if you hadn't had the strikes that came before. So really the sky's the limit. The The question then is you need to keep on winning because the, the bosses uh, understand this dynamic really well and they're also learning how to react now and they're taking steps to try to roll back some of these strikes and to demoralize people so that the confidence that is bubbling up uh, can be repressed. Let's wrap up this interview by talking a little bit about the bigger picture, the kind of broader strategic orientation that is entailed by this trade union class warrior, uh, you know, inside the state, outside the state, uh, developing people's capacities, this whole the whole nine yards. I mean, the, the whole sort of democratic socialist vision uh, is really well encapsulated, I think, by the processes that we're trying to sort of spell out here. You know, not only sort of uh, setting the conditions where we can sort of install the, our, you know, the benevolent politicians, <laughs> but uh, going beyond this uh, limited uh, social democratic vision to uh, think about how we can develop the, the capacities of everyday people and workers to begin to run their own affairs. You have a really great piece in a Verso collection that has just come out. It is available for free on the Verso website. It's a PDF or an ebook, rather. You can read it on your Kindle or ebook reader or on your computer or your phone if you have really great eyesight. It's called Socialist Strategy and Electoral Politics A Report. And you have an essay that's been reprinted there. It's called Red State Strikes and Electoral Politics. People should check that out. Like I said, it's free. Uh, support Verso, they do great work. And, uh, you know, you, you really integrate uh, the red state strikes with this kind of electoral wave. Update that for us with the blue state strike, how, how the kind of this kind of class struggle orientation emerges, uh, was, was catalyzed by the Bernie Sanders wave and what we ought to maybe do with it going forward. Yeah. So for decades, the 
real hegemonic stance in the U.S. left was to ignore politics if you're a radical, and if you're more of a progressive, was to kind of go along with whatever the Democratic Party threw at you. And so what's so exciting about the new socialist moment we're in, really beginning with Bernie, but now with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the growth of DSA and you know other elected officials and with the mass strikes, is for the first time in a long time in the United States, you see these electoral victories feeding off of struggles in the streets and communities and then strikes. And the two uh, really are building off each other in a remarkable way. So as I mentioned before, some of the key leaders of these strikes were first organized and inspired by the Bernie Sanders campaign. The Bernie Sanders campaign in turn has, and Bernie himself, has been actively supporting the strikes, sending out you know calls, 15 million people to donate to the strike funds. And so the reason this is so important is that you're not going to win just through strikes and protests in the streets, as important as those are, because you need to have political power and you need to uh, eventually take state power so that you can change the priorities of the state, the city, and the country as a whole. And so the question then is raised, well, what is the political expression of this militancy that you see in the strikes? Because one of the, you know, one of the things that happens is if your demands are immediate, it's relatively easier to galvanize large and politically heterogeneous groups around that. So a lot of people can support public education, whether you're Republican or not, uh, whether you're Democrat or not. You know, that's great. That's the way class struggle demands should be. But nevertheless, that raises a limitation, which is that if you're going to have a political project that can actually transform and transform in a radical way the priorities of the United States, you need to have a party and you need to have a political expression that can put people into the government that are accountable to these movements and that reflect these movements' demands. And you're not going to get that through the Democratic Party, Democratic Party establishment in particular, and clearly not the Republicans. And so the moment we're in is the beginning process of the working class in this country developing uh, an organizational political expression that can take the struggle beyond just these episodic struggles and strikes, as important as they are, and really put forward a political vision for, you know, what Bernie Sanders calls political revolution, but which is basically that working people are the majority. We should run the show. It's a simple message. It's not a message that has been said much until Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but it's a message that really resonates with people. And so I'm extremely excited about the opportunities and the openings for this electoral wave to feed off of the strike wave and for the strike wave to do the same uh, for like Bernie running in 2020, for instance. And it's important to stress the inverse of this as well is that let's say, for instance, that Bernie somehow is able to overcome the Democratic Party establishment and get the nomination. And lo and behold, after a major struggle, is able to actually get elected to the United States uh, government. You know, I think that <laughs> you know, that's not going to be an easy thing to happen. But let's just imagine that we get to that point. Well, you're going to need a mass movement and a mass working class movement to make any of the demands that Bernie is raising feasible to implement. Because you know that the Democrats and the Republicans that are going to be uh, still probably in control of the House and the Senate aren't going to want to take on the corporate elite because they're either the corporate elite themselves or they're funded by the corporate elite. And so if there's a lesson to be learned from the New Deal and from other subsequent history, it's that as good as a politician you have in office might be, 
And I think Bernie's as good as uh, we're going to get, really. You're going to need mass disruption. You're going to need mass strikes to create the crisis that makes it possible for these politicians to be able to actually legislate some of the changes that we need and to make it so that for the capitalist class, the cost of ceding to our demands and important demands like Medicare for all or Green New Deal, that the costs of ceding to those demands are lower than the costs of ignoring them. And so that is extremely hard to do. And that requires a tremendous amount of social power that really only the labor movement can provide. So unless we have this movement from below, I don't think that the political revolution, whatever you want to call it, is going to be viable. One of the most exciting aspects of the 2020 election and the kind of uh, crisis orientation of uh, politics you know, found in the political scene and the economic sector, this kind of uh, stagnation following the Great Recession, the inability of this kind of neoliberal common sense to solve the sovereign debt crisis, to bring back jobs, to provide for stability and uh, you know this this the general overall happiness of, of of the general populace it's manifesting itself in a variety of ways not only in left uh, you know kind of left trajectories but there's some very dangerous far rightward uh, sort of trajectories as well for sure but what we find now is that really the 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 vast majority of the energy to be found on uh, any part of the political spectrum that is even remotely left of center is coming from the socialists. And I, and I don't just mean that in terms, obviously the progressives are leading the way inside the democratic party. If you look at the energy, right, that's undeniable. I mean, you saw the way in which uh, people sort of rally to the defense of uh, not only AOC, but Ilhan, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and some of these other types of people who have been maligned by the Republicans and centrists inside of the democratic party as well. So the progressives have the energy, the momentum inside the democratic party. But further still, the socialists really carry, I think, the the future of even the progressive movement in the United States in, in, in their hands. It's in our hands. We're the ones that have the real kind of class struggle oriented strategy that, uh, you know, say the likes of uh, Elizabeth Warren and others would desperately need to pull off their even sort of uh, relatively radical policies. Uh, so talk to us a little bit more about how socialists can get involved in this moment and start taking very serious steps to take the lead in, in the political movements that shape our lives today to sort of break out of these seminar rooms and these dusty uh, you know, church basement halls that we've been uh, confined to for the past uh, several decades. Yeah, I think if anything, uh, socialists continue to underestimate the openings available to us. Like, People almost take it for granted now that you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez going viral, talking about funds going towards uh, education and healthcare instead of war. It's like, oh yeah, that's great. Did you see that? Moving on. You know, there's something new about what's happening, right? When you have Bernie Sanders making a uh, you know response to the State of the Union, which he ends by saying, "We need a movement to defeat the ruling class," you know, and you have millions of people watch that. That's new. That doesn't happen very often. And my worry, I'm not actually generally worried, I'm quite optimistic, but my worry is that we are going to not fully seize the potential that lays in front of us. And part of that is because there's accumulated traditions on the left uh, for decades of marginalization that makes it difficult for us to really reorient towards a kind of mass politics 
that many of us just haven't experienced. You know, so we, we talk about it, uh, we've read about it, but actually what that looks like on the ground is not always clear to people. So, you know, w- what that means is trying to prioritize building struggles and organizations in which large layers of working class people and that includes an extremely diverse working class. You know, this idea that the working class is a bunch of white dudes has literally zero resonance with the realities of the class struggle right now. And it's worth bracketing and saying that, you know, these strikes have been primarily female-led. And also in LA and now in Denver, a lot of the major protests and strike leaders are people of color and students of color. So when we're talking about making a turn to the working class, it's not about ignoring race or gender. It's a question of raising the issues that people feel most urgently passionate about and feel most urgently affected by and saying, you can do something to change that. And we have a political vision and a political strategy that can let you get involved in a way that can make a difference. And so that might seem obvious. We say these words all the time, but we don't necessarily do what it takes to make that a reality. And so we have a huge opportunity across the country right now because of the teacher strike wave in particular and because of Bernie Sanders. These two factors alone are create a political space in which literally millions of people can become political agents for themselves and for their class and for their community for the first time in their lives. And so that is a challenge to us because if we don't, as socialists, create the space for that process to happen, for millions of people to become organizers through the Bernie campaign, through teachers across the country to go on strike, and for workers in every city where there's a teacher strike to come out to the pick line. If we're not the people pushing that politics, what that means is that energy can dissipate. Nothing is inevitable. So you can have flare-ups, but unless we're able to create a political organization and a political platform that resonates and that builds a longstanding movement, the energy that you see right now is not going to last forever. And so I personally am extremely optimistic because the right wing and the centrists have been in power and they've had their chance and it's been proven to not work. So really the only people that have a credible alternative to the, you know, status quo is the left, you know, despite what Trump might say, the right wing is really pushing more of the same. So we have this opportunity really for the first time in decades to create a mass socialist movement in the United States and a mass labor movement, because you can't really have the two without each other. So I'm extremely optimistic. I would like to you know, think that DSA in particular over the next year or two can recruit tens of thousands of working class people who have never been to a meeting, who've never been part of the left, and who really should take ownership of this movement. And when they do, I think that there's very little that's going to stop us from radically transforming the political economy of the United States for the foreseeable future. Well, if that's not a call to the barricades, and I've never heard one before, uh, very well said, Eric Blanc. Uh, you've got a number of pieces uh, out in Jacobin Magazine right now. Uh, I'm sure there will be uh, quite a few emerging from your experiences with the Denver Teachers Union, and we look forward to hearing those reports. And um, a, a real quick pitch, give a quick pitch for DSA Labor and some of the efforts that uh, those folks are doing for the teachers. I had um, you know, Justin Kirkland on uh, DPS radio a couple of weeks ago, and he is a Denver teacher. Folks check that episode out. It's from uh, about two weeks ago. And we talked a great deal about that struggle. And we talked a lot about DSA labor. Uh, give us the spiel on, on how they're uh, intervening in the strike. 
Well, here in Denver, I've been extremely impressed with the um, DSA chapter and their uh, labor committee in particular. You know, it's a it's a it's a remarkable operation they have, where you have dozens of comrades spanning out all across the city, out on the picket line all day, providing support, and really not just providing solidarity, but also talking politics, talking you know what is it going to take to win? What 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 are the forces that are behind this? You know, because the role of socialists, I think, clearly goes beyond just being out there in support. We need to be out there in support too. But we also have a political obligation to tell the truth, which is that an alternative uh, political perspective is out there and that only through an alternative political movement are we going to be able to actually win the schools that students deserve, which is the demand that you know has been put out there. So the DSA here in Denver, just like in Los Angeles and really in all of the cities that have been at so far, has, uh, I think, stepped up to the plate in really doing everything it can to show why the strikes are important to the, you know, working people generally in the city and to be out there and putting their, you know, time and effort on the line to support the pickets. Looking forward to see what comes of this strike wave in 2019 and beyond and how it impacts the broader political uh, struggle that we're all engaged in here. A lot of reasons to be excited. And I'll tell you, I've only been a socialist for a little under a decade. And I presume based on your age, Eric, you're right in that ballpark with me or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, it's never been a better time to call yourself a socialist and a lot of really exciting things on the on the horizon. Everybody check out Red State Revolt when that book comes out from Verso Press in April and check out his writings as they emerge in the coming days and weeks. Eric Blanc, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Yeah, thanks. This is great. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Eric Blanc for joining us. We talked a lot about some of the challenges and impasses of collective bargaining and how that relates to the broader democratic socialist project. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are entirely funded by our listeners. So if you like that broadcast and you want to hear a lot more like this, you want to help us get this out to the masses, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and consider donating one hour's worth of your wage per month to help keep our operations growing and thriving well into 2020 and beyond. I'd really like to continue our frenetic production schedule. Uh, As of right now, we put out more podcasts than any other lefty podcast of a similar size and nature in the world, as far as I know. But we need your support to keep that thing going. So head over to patreon.com and donate what you can. We're making a jump to YouTube very soon. Thanks to the generous contributions of our patrons, uh, I have purchased a ridiculous amount of video equipment got the whole nine yards and i'm really really excited to unveil what i've got planned for you guys on youtube we're going to be doing weekly explainer videos to start youtube is a very important site of intervention in the discourse right now the far right owns it but uh, a couple of us are trying to take it back so look forward to that Lots of great stuff coming your way. I have banked about eight or nine episodes in the past two weeks, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear some of those. Really, really, really good shit. Yeah, that's a tease. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Keep the hope and the struggle alive. Big victory, Denver. Shout out to those teachers. Let's see what we can do in Oakland up next. All right, until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this is you crazy.
crazy mother.